So as we walk through the text this morning, there's really, I'm really going to spend time under two headings. The first is the substance of depravity, and the second is the scope of depravity. And so we'll talk about the parts of depravity, what, the, the, the plight of mankind. What are we really facing with? Uh, what are we facing off with? What are we dealing with as humans in this day and age, and really throughout all of humanity? And we'll move from just the base, the essence of, of what it is to be depraved, and we'll move into the scope how far it extends even into our lives and how it manifests itself. And so first, the substance of depravity. If you look at verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Two key words there in that sentence are ungodliness and unrighteousness. And they together, they don't necessarily, um, they don't have different uh, meanings outright. But ungodliness really is a lack of reverence for God. That leads you to, to, to action. But really, ungodliness is a lack of reverence for God. And unrighteousness is, is more like a lack of reverence for his law. So both of them are related, obviously, as the law stems and, and flows out of God. But the idea there in this uh, ungodliness and unrighteousness, these two statements brought together, these two terms used together is to, is to help us to see that there's this comprehensive manner that is against God. It's a rebellion against God, and God's wrath is against that. Also notice that it says that all ungodliness and, and unrighteousness. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. When we think about what is unrighteous, what's ungodly, Lots of times we, we look outside of ourselves and we see things in the media, we th- see things in our culture, things, things, the things that we hate as a church. Well, we should do that. We, 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 it's, it's speaking of those things in this verse. But it's also speaking, when it says all, it's also speaking of even the ungodliness and the unrighteousness, however small degree it is in our own lives. An irreverence for God himself. On a reverence for his laws in our lives. So this sinful, ungodly, unrighteous state, this is depravity. And it's often used to, to describe, this, this phrase here is often used to describe youthless, worthless metal that's been discarded. This depravity, this debased state. It's metal that's just been discarded because it has too much impurity. A smith, as he's working with this precious metal, he, he sees lumps that are just impure. There's nothing he can do with it. There's, it's dross, if you will. So he takes it and he casts it to the side because nothing good can come of that. As, a, as in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 30, God has tested man's mind and he has found it to be worthless and useless as it relates to reverence towards him and his law. And this is the state of depravity, not just of one man, not just of a few, not just of the worst of the worst, but of all mankind. This is the state. This is the state of of the elderly in our community. This is the state of the children that sleep in the beds down the hall. This is what God sees. Ungodliness and irreverence for himself and irreverence for his law. What has man done to be unrighteous? Well, in this passage, it talks about the exchange that man has made. The exchange... In verse 23, it says that man has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. He's exchanged the very essence, the very being of God and the glory that emanates from him for something made out of stone or wood by human hands. 
quite a contrast. In verse 25, it says that we've exchanged the truth of God, the truth about God, for a lie. In verse 26, it's, it says we've exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Which is to say the very thing that we see so clearly in our being. Our, our own makeup. And what we see around us in every way, we, we've exchanged what God has designed mankind to be, and to, an ex, to experience. We've exchanged it for something that's totally contrary to nature. As we sang just a moment ago, when you are not enough, we trade, we look otherwise, we look in other places. And this is a rebellion against God. This is a symptom of depravity, of sinfulness, of unrighteousness. Again, it's from the first to the last, it's from the oldest to the youngest. We exchange the truth about God for a lie, and truth is not just something to be known. The Bible speaks of truth, it's truth that's to be obeyed. That's a tangent that we could, we could walk down just for a moment. So many of us, were good at knowing things, myself included, chief among them, but not so good at doing things. And yet we, ex- we, we hold this truth, but we don't obey it, and we end up obeying a lie. This is what we've seen in history throughout ages. It's what we'll see in the future God's word is our absolute truth, but it's being rejected and it's being replaced. And not just outside the church, it's being rejected inside the church as well. May God have mercy on us. What are we replacing the truths of God with? This is a question for you to ask yourself individually this morning. What truths of God have you rejected personally? And what lie have you replaced it with? Our culture, we can look around, and we will in just a moment, but we have such a, a plethora of choices to choose from where we've exchanged the truth of God, a, a promise of God, something clearly explained and, and demonstrated in nature, and we've exchanged it for something quite different in rebellion. In our culture today, it's anything goes, Right? We've dethroned God. His opinion doesn't matter. The, the word of God does not speak into our lives. And really, it's up to majority rule. And when, when majority rule fails, it, it's up to your own personal opinion. And then anarchy is realized. We've seen this throughout history time and again. And this is our past. This is our future. This is depravity. Many are yelling at God, as it were, I don't want you, and I don't want your plans, I don't want your laws in my life. And when we do that, whether we do it explicitly or implicitly, we incur God's wrath. That's what the warning is, and that's why it's so, such a stern and startling warning as we read verse 18. That, we, that God's wrath is being revealed against those who are ungodly. And those who are unrighteous. That should scare us this morning. It should scare us as, 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 as pastors. It should scare us as fathers and as mothers and as uncles and aunts and as neighbors. That the wrath of God is against those who sin against him. This idea of God having wrath is not really popular, is it? If you think about it. And it's not just been in recent days, post-enlightenment. 
Um, even from the days of the Greeks, this idea that God, this, that this deity would impose wrath on his creation for many was just un, uh, unsophisticated and untenable. You can't, you can't believe something like that. In second century, a Christian heretic named Marcion, he even omitted in verse 18 this statement of God, the wrath of God, and just wanted it to be some inanimate object. It was just this law of reaping and sowing. That's what the wrath of God really is. It's not really of God. It's just if you, if you plant something, this is what you'll reap. Even a modern critic I read recently, he, he, he said of this, of this statement or this idea that Paul talks about the wrath of God and he calls it archaic. And he says it's just simply cause and effect. This isn't God's work. And, and this is something that can creep into our minds so often. Because it is a truth. That there is a, a law that what we so reap, this is, a, this is a natural law. We see it in agriculture. We see it in our families. We see it in our relationships. Yes, it's absolutely true. But to say that, that God does not have wrath, that God's anger does not burn against those who rebel against him, takes the teeth out of God, and it makes the gospel worthless. God's wrath is necessary to the biblical conception of God. One, one theologian who I really appreciate, he put it this way, as long as God is God, he cannot behold with indifference that his creation is destroyed and his holy will trodden underfoot. Therefore, he meets sin with his mighty and annihilating reaction. Think about that for a moment. As long as God is God, he cannot behold with indifference that his creation is destroyed and his holy will trodden underfoot. Therefore, he meets sin with his mighty and annihilating reaction. God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't overlook it. We can't misread as, as, as Christians... Or as humans, we can't misread God's grace as if it's something that we can take advantage of. We read this week, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. Absolutely not. So God's wrath is against those who work unrighteousness and those who work ungodliness. I want to say a few things that we pull out of this text about God's wrath. The first is this, that it's just. God's wrath is just. If you look at verse 18 and you look at 24, it backs that up so well and it demonstrates it so clearly. In verse 18 it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So from God himself and his, his being and from his creation flows truth, flows knowledge. And it's accessible for us this morning, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. Whether you're old or young, we can look at this universe and we can see design and we can see God's power and his existence. And the fact that he, we can deduce that creator with all power, would then submit, would, would expect us to submit to his created order and to his rule. And when we suppress that truth and we elevate our own opinions and desires above that, we rebel against God. That is why his wrath burns against those who partake. So man is conscious of God's existence, of his power, of his divine nature, because God has clearly revealed those traits. Now, not all of God is revealed in nature, but enough for us to be guilty when we spur it. 
So any unrighteous act, any rebellion against God is actually a suppression of the truth that's been revealed. And this is why God's wrath burns against us. Because it involves a willingness on the part of those who do it. So Paul can rightly accuse us, those living in the first century, that they've suppressed the truth of God and they have rebelled against him. And they are, as he says, without excuse. So God is just in his wrath. But not only is his wrath just, it's also active. So there's a, a present wrath to be experienced. It says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed. It's not a completed act. It is a present and ongoing act in Paul's day and even in ours as well. We'll talk about what that means, what that wrath really is, and where we can see it in our, in our, in our culture even today. But God's wrath is also a future wrath in the day of the Lord and for eternity. Hell is a part of that future wrath of God that is coming. The present wrath gives God, God, or is from God and it gives the people just a foretaste of his anger and of his justice. And future wrath is an ongoing, never-ending manifestation of God's wrath. So presently and even in the past, we've been able to see, one theologian said this, the history of the world is the judgment of the world. As we look in the past and we see all of the horrors that we, we want to not look at, we don't want to bring up this morning, all the terrible things that have happened even this past week in our, in our area as we could open the newspaper on any given day and we see of murders and abuse. We look at those things in the, in the past and we say, How, what are these things? These are a history of the judgment of the world as we look at the history of the world wars and many other wars that have been fought. And many other horrific tragedies that we've experienced as mankind. This is a history of the world, the judgment of God. As God removes his grace when we, when we rebel against his truth. When we suppress what he has given to us. What, is, what he has revealed about us and of himself. When we suppress those things, when we hide those things, when we rebel against those things. God's grace is removed. And this is the active wrath, the present wrath of God in our lives. Don't be, don't be fooled into thinking that it's just reaping and sowing. It's more than that. This is not a deistic wrath. This isn't a deistic happenstance. Do this and this happens. While those laws are true, God is actively judging. And history reveals that to us this morning. So in the present, we receive a taste of what life is like without God. In the future, we will receive the full manifestation of, of the experience apart from our creator, God. His wrath will be fully realized. I want to just park it here just for a moment to say this, and say this again. That God's wrath is not going to be on those who are in sin. This is an important point for us as a church, for us as Christians, as we evangelize the world, as we even share our faith with those who are lost. It's not one day going to be on those who rebel against him. It is even now against and on those who rebel against him. If you are living in sin this morning, it's not one day you'll face the wrath of God. Today, the wrath of God is upon you. I don't say that to just be an angry person, but... 
with sternness and, and fear and trembling as we read this text together that even now the wrath of God is revealed against our children, is revealed against our neighbors, is revealed against our brothers and sisters, and it is revealed against us. As God withdraws his grace, that holds back even more wickedness and even more ungodliness. One thing I would like to say about that, so many times when we, when we share our faith, people will make mock of Christianity and say, well, if you don't obey Jesus Christ, then he'll punish you. Such an endearing meme, right? Like, obey me or I'll kill you. That's not Christianity. That's not the message of Christianity. We've talked about that several times, even in the past few months. Christianity is not saying that. Christianity says this, the wrath of God is upon you. You've sinned against him. You've rebelled him. And even now, judgment is on you and coming for you. And you're presently realizing it. And one day it will be fully in the future revealed and made manifest and experienced. But Christ and his love came and his blood was shed and his body was broken for our sins and if we'll repent of that sin and trust in the work of Christ and in that resurrection we will receive the hope of that resurrection we'll receive the hope of forgiveness and this is what Christianity says that Jesus is rescuing those who repent he's not damning those who will repent that is already upon them they're already damned those who are without Christ living in unrighteousness living in ungodliness they're already damned So this is the urgency that we sense as we read this text. It's not just a future pain. It's not just a future suffering. It's not just a future apart from God. It's even now a present separation from God. So this wrath of God is both active and it is just and it is being revealed presently against those who are against him. And what is it? We alluded to it a moment ago. It is the withholding, it is the removal of God's grace in our lives. So many times as we look around, we ask this question and we say, how in the world could, if there's a God that loves and he's all-powerful, how could the world be in such disarray? How could there be so much pain and suffering? And we point to that and we say, as if it's some type of a, an attack and, 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 a, and, and just the ending point of Christianity. That's quite the opposite. If it were not for the withholding grace of Christ and God in our lives, as Christians, we would be so far worse. This world would be so much, much more destroyed and full of pain and suffering than it is now. You see, it's God's active grace in the life, in history, that withholds what we could be. And yet when we rebel against God, when we suppress the truth that he has revealed to us, both collectively and individually, his grace is removed. His his grace is drawn back. We don't have to look any farther for an illustration for this than the prodigal son. As you consider his life, he, he knew better than his father. The truths the father had been revealed to the son and he recognized all the laws and nature and character of his father the, the resources that were at his disposal he knew the plan of the family and yet he bucked against that he demanded his own share knowing better than his father he took that and he went out the irony is his father knew exactly what would become I suppose he knew exactly what would become of his son 
goes out in arrogance and in pride, and he is destroyed. And he experiences pain and suffering and loss. What what takes place? God, the grace of the Father is remembered, and the Son returns and receives that grace that is extended from the Father. What happens? The presence of the Father and the laws are spurned and rebelled against. Suffering and pain. The Father withholds His grace and He allows the Son to make a ruin of His life, to make a mess. This is our story as well. This is, this is what happens to us, both, again, individually and collectively, as we rebel against what God has revealed to us. As we spurn his grace, we run headlong into suffering. If you imagine this, think of all the unanswered prayers, all the unanswered, unrealized desires that you've had in your sinful state. All the anger that could have given way to something much worse, to murder. All the lust that could have led into adultery. All the desires that could have manifested themselves in various idolatries. So often we have the desire to sin. We have the desire to, to, to spurn against God's grace and laws. And what, what happens? We are stopped. This is the grace of God in our lives. And yet as we spurn that, as we rebel against that, as we suppress those truths, God's grace is withheld and it is removed God gives them over it says it's a judicial term that you would hand over a prisoner he gives them over to a reprobate mind he gives them over to a debased mind it's him removing his grace saying if this is what you desire if this is what you want then take it so as we zoom out we begin to see this idea that depravity of mankind The essence, the substance of it is that we rebel against God. We don't obey his laws. We run headlong into pain. And God allows us to do that as we suppress these truths. These are the principal components of our deprived state. That we've rejected God and he has given us the thing that we've asked for. Freedom from him. So we were created to have no other God before Yahweh. And yet we regularly feel the, the need, the draw to bow down and to worship others. We regularly feel the, the desire to bow down and worship ourselves. To remove God and that we've broken the first commandment. We make things all day long. Now we don't worship idols like, we, like mankind did years ago. Not, not, not in these parts. And yet we still break the second commandment. We feel there's this draw in there to take something around us, some, something made with hands, and devote our lives to it. It's been said that anything that you say, well, what's an idol in my life? It's anything that the moment that you realize that you're not willing, that you realize it's an idol, you're not willing to give it up. An idol is something that we wake up thinking about and we go to bed thinking about. We devote all of our being and our time so oftentimes in, the, in, in this nation, in this area, it's materialistic. It's some item, it's some activity. So we have this bend in, our, in us to make other idols. 
We have this desire in us to defame God and break the third commandment as we, we, we don't give him reverence. We disobey our parents. We take things that don't belong to us. This desire inside of us, we feel these needs to do these things and we say, my experience, my feelings, my needs inside, they, they should be elevated over the laws of God. So yes, we've heard that thou shalt not steal, and yet we, we have a desire and we have a need, a felt need inside, and so we reach and we take. We could go all the way down through all of the commandments that we break. What we end up doing is we rebel against God in each and every one of these. This is depravity. We suppress truth that has been revealed to us, and God gives us over to the very thing that we ask for. And this is depravity. How far does that go? And what does it look like for today? And so we looked at the substance of depravity. I'd really like first to look at the scope of depravity. The scope of depravity. How far does it go? I have three things I want to point out to you that are really just a cultural observation for us this morning. The first is this. Our depravity, our, our depravity is revealed when we redefine the terms. If you're taking notes, this would be a good thing to write down. Our depravity is revealed when we redefine the terms. You see, God has given us terms. He's given us definitions. He's explained what things like life are and what marriage is. And yet culture continues to suppress those truths that are naturally revealed to us and given to us explicitly in Scripture. And as we do, culture falls apart. Culture experiences pain. Humanity is, or marriage is, is broke down. We've redefined life itself and now falsely hold, to the, hold, hold on to the power to give Life and even to take away life when we so desire. We've elevated, we've, we've redefined the terms. We've taken liberty to change the definitions that God has given to us. And now we even have redefined murder and now call it choice and a right. This is everywhere we look. This is our culture today. And so imagine just for a moment, just consider our own culture. Where have we redefined the terms? The terms that God has given to us that are clearly revealed in revelation, special revelation and general, in the sky and in the scripture. Where, where are we redefining terms? We can talk about it culturally. Zoom in and think about just you specifically. Where are you? So often my, my children even, they, they want to they just take the words that I've said even and as, it's not innocent, but as innocently as, as is possible, they want to change it and redefine. Well, yeah, I know what you said, but this is really what you meant. And they redefine the terms that I've just given to them. And then, they, then, then they try to walk in those, you know, color inside those lines. And then they adjust it even more and they continue to redefine terms. It's in our nature to do. Where have you done that? This is where we see our own depravity. This is how it reaches out. We redefine the terms and definitions that God, has, that God has given to us. Another way that we do it, the second point that I've noticed, is that we reorder priorities. We reorder priorities. We have, a number, we have several priorities that govern us right now. One, uh, several bodies, governing bodies that rule over us. In a real sense, we are governed by the state of Maryland, even now. We're governed by Washington, in a sense, we're governed by Washington County Public Schools as we meet in their space. On another level, you're governed by your own personal emotions and feelings, and the greater culture of your family and your last name. All these things govern you and kind of help steer you through this life. 
There's a pecking order that's been revealed to us at, at the top of it. And over all of these Christians and mankind should recognize and submit to God's revealed word. And yet again, similar to redefining the terms but different, we elevate our own emotions, our own experience, our, those priorities, and they supersede the laws of God that he's revealed to us. And we get into all kinds of trouble. The felt needs, again, in our hearts, they lead us to take something that's not ours. And to do things that, even as Scripture says, are unimaginable. And yet we reorder our priorities and say, I was born this way. This is what God has for me. This is my experience, and it supersedes. It takes priority over the written word of God. I want to speak directly. There's a, there's a road there are many roads that are so difficult for us to walk as, as human beings. We live in a fallen world. There are so many temptations that are common to man and to women, right? We say this is very difficult to, to walk a holy life and to not do these things because I'm so tempted to steal or I'm so tempted toward pornography or homosexuality or whatever it may be. Even even gender dysphoria, these things that we really, that are real experiences, that are real temptations, that are real struggles on a personal level, and we say, these things are who I am. They define me. Those priorities supersede the laws of God, and God says, no. My law rules over all of your experience and emotion and feelings. We say, God made me, and he don't made, make junk. Well, that's a true statement, and yet this world has fallen. So there is no junk, but not every road that we walk is easy. As a matter of fact, we're promised, especially as we seek to walk in newness of life, that power that he has given to us, that road that he has determined that, that his elect would walk, it will be a difficult road. We cannot redefine terms and we cannot reorder the priorities that we have been given. We are governed by something outside of ourselves. and We have to submit to that. The last way that we see, that I see depravity in our culture today is that we regulate unrighteousness. We regulate it. And what I mean by that is this. Instead of outlawing and saying, now this, God says, thou shalt not lie. We say, okay, you, you, can, you can't lie unless it's a white lie. And only if it's a little tiny white lie and nobody's hurt, then you're able to lie. That's that's. That's okay. What we've done is we've added to, and we've adjusted. It's, again, related to redefining the terms, but it is just as damnable. As we regulate unrighteousness, this is the most common, I believe, in the church. It's the most common. We're, we are more than careful to not redefine terms. We love life, and we love marriage, and we love what the family is, and what God has said those things are to be, and we hold those things tightly we wouldn't dare to think of reordering our priorities, right? Now, that's maybe a little bit more common than redefining the terms, but this regulating unrighteousness is something that is so common in the church. I don't mean to say this church specifically, but the church universal. This is where we are most, there's so much danger for us. To take what God has forgiven or forbidden and to just limit it. And to just regulate it and say only a little bit is okay. It's only a little bit of gossip. 
It's only a little bit of stealing at work. It's, it's, it's not really as bad as you might think it is. Instead of God's law ruling and governing us, we begin to compare ourselves to others and we say, I can regulate my sin that I'm involved in as long as I'm not as bad off as this person, as long as I don't do what, as, go as far as this person had gone in the past or is going presently. We somehow say, like, now we're okay. One of the symptoms of doing that is it becomes self-righteousness. As we compare ourselves to others around us and we say, hey, you know, I shouldn't be doing any of this, but really I'm doing less than that person is doing. And so what we do is we, we, as we compare ourselves in a, in, a, in a parallel manner with those next to us, we're puffed up with pride. This is not what, this is not what the church is plagued with. Many of you, as you've walked with Christ in, 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 in communities of faith and churches, you've recognized that in your own life and in the life of those around you. It's just an arrogance and a self-righteousness. and what, It's because we regulate unrighteousness. And instead of comparing ourselves to the laws of God and to God himself, we compare ourselves to those around us. And when we compare ourselves to those around us, we're puffed up with pride. When we compare ourselves to, to God himself and to the laws, we are laid low in humility. This is a good symptom for all of us. This is a good, a good test for all of us. So our culture and even much of the church today has exchanged the revealed truths of God for sinful behavior. And somehow we've either redefined, we've reordered, or we've regulated that which God has forbidden. And this is a problem. Spe- specifically with regulating unrighteousness. We look at sexual deviation and we condemn them. And in this text, we realize that right up there with idolatry and right up there with homosexuality in this passage is gossips and envy and other things that we would not put on the same list that don't make it in the newspaper every day. That all points to the fact that we have ourselves regulated unrighteousness. We've added to, we've set levels and codes so as we consider the, the substance and the scope of the depravity that we face this morning, there's a couple responses that I can think of this morning. There's one that I really hope that we all would just run towards, but there's, there's a couple that, you might, uh, that we might hear this morning. One is, as we consider this idea of God's wrath and man's sinfulness, we might say, well, what's wrong with fill in the blank? Seriously, this is 2019. What's wrong with this or what's wrong with that? And to that response, I would just point you back to the scriptures. We're, we don't, we're not given the privilege as created beings to make the rules. That's not something that we've been afforded, nor is it something that we want to. As much as you might ask for that even now in your mind, whoever, if this is you, as much as you might think that that's a desirable thing, realize that it is not. We do not want to be the rule makers. We are incapable, we cannot bear that load. So what's wrong with this? Well, it's not my opinion. What's wrong with that? Well, it's not your opinion. God has given his opinion and he has spoken. In creation and in his law, he has clearly told us in the way that we should walk. So when somebody says, well, what's wrong with this or what's wrong with that? In love and in humility, we say, because God says. And this is why the scriptures are so important for us this morning. This is why we as believers and those who desire to walk in the precepts of the Lord should find solace, comfort, and direction in the scriptures. 
So that's one response. What's wrong with this? Well, God said so. Another response that you may hear this morning is, I think that I'm better and above all of these things. Now, I don't think anybody would stand and say that this morning. That I, I, I've never been guilty of that. I've never been guilty of redefining and reordering and all this other stuff. I've never been guilty of that. None of us would say that this morning. But in our hearts and our minds, we act in this way that we are above other sins. I just want to point out to you again, on the level of idolatry and any sexual sin, Right there in the middle of them is gossip and envy and hatred and murders. By the way, anger and hatred and murder are all just parts of the same road, different phases and steps on the journey. One leads to the other. So if you think you're better than somebody else, you're not. You might ask this morning, how is it possible that me, in the life that I'm living, in the road that I'm walking, how, how can I not be better than somebody else that does these things? Because at the root of all sin is a redefining, is an elevating of your own agenda and your own ideas and your own pleasure against the very laws revealed by God. It's the same thing. The, man, the motivation to gossip is the same motivation to, 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 be, to, to worship an idol. It's the same thing. And so to think you're better than somebody else is so, so far from the truth. We have, a, we, we have to admit in the evangelical community that part of the frustration stemming from the LGBTQ revolution is that, that we supposed to be, to, to, to have, that, that's supposed to be like a, a higher level of idolatry. It's, it's, it's so much more wicked and sinful than being engaged in the things that we find ourselves being tempted in and engaged in on a, on a weekly basis. In some ways, we imagine it to be more depraved. And I, I'll admit to you this morning that there are many sins out there today that are so much more explicit and in your face than what we find ourselves tempted to, but they are no more depraved than gossip. They are no more depraved than envy. They are no more depraved than theft of a paperclip. All of these things, they find their same source in rebellion, and they're just as repugnant to God. Let me say this. God has never looked down from heaven and saw a gossip and said, you know what, at least they're not gay. Think about it. He's never said that. God looks at every single sin, and he hates it. And his wrath burns against each and every one of them. And so would you not be humbled with me as we consider that even our sins, the ones that we find pleasurable and that we wink at, God does not. And he hates them all equally. And his wrath burns against all of them. And so humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, under the mighty hand of God. And in humility, ask for forgiveness. And then don't turn and declare judgment on others and secretly enjoy their demise and the wrath of God upon them Go to God truly and beg for mercy. Repent and then go. Today is not a rally cry to storm the apostates in Washington County and to wage war on social media as if it's, uh, and just call everybody to repentance of their godless actions and uh, however insignificant they may be. But it's, it's, it's to do that in addition to first waging war on our own sins. Mortifying our own flesh in any way that it would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. 
So maybe either this morning, just there's a hint in your heart that you would say that I am better than that, or I'm better than this, or I'm above these things. Would you not be humbled to see that that's not true? And lastly, the response that I see and I desire so much for myself and for this church is that we would respond and say, how can I help? As we look across this world, we say, what's wrong with that sin? We wouldn't say that. That we wouldn't say, I'm better than them. No, that we wouldn't say that, but how can we help? As a church, how can we contribute to this? Andrew Walker had a quote in one of his books. I think it's so powerful. It said this, some of us forget about truth. Most of us forget about grace. Think about that. If you write things down, write that down. Most of us, I'm sorry, some of us forget about truth. And most of us forget about grace. So as we consider about how we are to engage this world that's lost and dying, that's, that has God's wrath upon him, consider this. We must take truth and we must take grace, recognizing that of such were some of you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when Jesus sees the crowd, he has what? Compassion. His wrath burns against them, but he has compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so many of us, as we consider the cultural issues that the throes of our youth are, are, are stuck in and being oppressed by, we think, well, that's just a choice. Choose to do this. This is the right thing. And yet we, we, we forget that they are a sheep without shepherd and that they alone are not suppressing the truth of God, but as a culture we have in for thousands of years. And so in humility, with the desiring that God would work, we pray this prayer that what would happen in verse 38, that the Lord would send, the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. And so how can you help? Well, you'd be sent. You go. With what? With this hope that we've received. I couldn't help but look at thinking of another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. We read it last week or two weeks ago. I can't remember. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, it says, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. And we consider... Of all the temptation that this world faces, the, the temptation of the, of the youth of this day, of those who are really struggling with their identity, are really struggling in a fallen world with a broken body, that we wouldn't, in condemnation and, and in hatred even, point our finger, but, but we would recognize it with, in humility that was, that, was, that was me, that I'm no better than that person. And if it weren't for the grace of God that was extended to me, the truths of God that were revealed through the word of God that created justification and sanctification to even be possible in my life, we would humble ourselves. Man, that could be me. That is me but for the grace of God. And God, would your grace extend to them as well this morning? Praise God, because many of us did not receive what we deserve. All of us have not received what we deserve. And many of us have received even more salvation. And so what are we to do? We, what's our response? How can we help? Well, uh, we ourselves, what do we do? Well, we, re- we repent. We repent of the sins that are listed, both the big in our minds and the little ones in our culture. That we repent of all of them. And that we also recognize that we are sent. We end every, every, every sermon, every time together on Sunday morning with this statement. And, and I do fear that it can become just ho-hum and it's something that we say. 
We say it every week because it's important that you are sent. The idea is that we have received the grace of God. And as we looked at last week with generosity, we go to the world and we say, these are the resources that we've been given, the truths of the gospel, chief among them, and we give them with open hands to those around us. Not in, not in arrogance or in pride, but in gratitude. And with grace in our hearts, we extend it to others. So as we come to a close this morning, I just want to remind you this need in our life to both repent and to be sent. And that, that would be the constant refrain in our lives, that we would repent of our own sin and that we would be sent and that we would go. And so as we, bring, uh, as we bring this time to a close here in just a moment, I'm going to read a quote and I'm going to give some time just for you to consider, to respond in your own minds and hearts, just in your seats, before Tim, Pastor Tim comes and prays. There'll be a time for you to do that. And to inform you in that, I want to read another quote from Walker. This is so helpful. We all sin. He's speaking specifically here of those who would give in to the sin of homosexuality, believing that this temptation that they have is part of who they are and that that's what God would have them to do. In the same way, it speaks to somebody who would be a kleptomaniac or even somebody who's struggling with gender dysphoria or something like that. Any sin, really. There's something in your heart telling you to do something that you shouldn't do because God says not to do it. He says that those sins, they're no worse than lust, idolatry, envy, greed, and all the other middle-class heterosexual sins that guys struggle with, that we explain away and excuse. He goes on to say, we all coerce ourselves in a direction that runs against nature each time we seek to sit on God's throne, no matter what it is. He says, the person who feels morally superior or self-righteous at the sins of others, including those who have followed the transgender path, this feeling, that feeling that wars against their own soul no less than the person who would like to be a part of the opposite sex. Jesus' strongest words were reserved for those who define themselves by comparing themselves favorably with others and who felt their own goodness was enough to earn them approval from God. But God have mercy on us. That this is true so often of Christians. As we are forgiven of so much that we would shake the coat someone who owes us so little. The warning that we would close on this morning is this, that oftentimes the most dangerous thing that can happen to you is for God to give you what you've asked for. And in explicit ways and in implicit ways, we have asked to sit on our own, on, on God's throne. We've asked for God to remove himself from our context and our situation. Would you see the foolishness of that this morning? And would you return to Christ and ask him to not withhold his grace, for him not to abandon you or give you over to your own fleshly desires, but that he would truly hold you fast and that you would repent and that you would be sent. This is the hope of our families. This is the hope of Hagerstown. This is the hope of Washington County and of the world. So with that in mind, I just want to give you just a moment, just in silence. We don't do this often, but I want to just create some space for you, for you to bow your head and close your eyes and just truly consider right now. What are you to put off? What are you to put on this morning? What lies have you believed this morning that you need to repent and turn from?
Father, in our immaturity and in our sinful, deprived state, we have desired so many times to be free from your rules and from your laws and your precepts. Today we recognize that they are good for us. They govern us and they protect us. And that even these laws that you've extended to us are grace to us. Your desire is not to take away our life, but to give us life, even to the full. God, we consider this, as we consider these truths that you've revealed to us this morning, would you point us, Spirit, to the things in which we are believing lies, to the areas where we believe lies, where we run from you, where we've rebelled against you, and that we as a church every level and in every area would truly repent and be humbled of this sin and that we would be sent with this good news. God, we recognize that the greatest gift that you've given to this church, save Christ, is his word. As we look at it, we recognize that the terrible thing to do is to suppress the truth and the good thing to do would be to reveal it and to broadcast it. So would that be the action of each and every one of us this week as we would broadcast good news to those around us? And we ask that these things be done in your name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen.